Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 225 with my guests, Joe and June. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, Mental Pod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. But go to the website, check it out, uh, join the forum, read blogs, read guest blogs, fill out a survey, see how other people filled out surveys, uh, or uh, support the show. You can do that too. Um, I have been feeling, I, you know, I like to give you guys updates sometimes, uh, especially if I'm coming off the heels of having a, a bad uh couple of weeks or a month um especially if it's med related and as a lot of you know i had a brutal uh, couple of months coming off abilify of and then everything kind of leveled out but i'm in this weird place lately where i'm kind of between good and numb it's it's um it's such a bizarre place to be because you want to feel better but you almost feel greedy because you don't feel bad there's like nothing that's there's nothing you know that's weighing on me where i'm like oh god i gotta i gotta deal with this crisis but there's a just a um a lack of kind of excitement uh that that i really wish was there it's it's weird it's um i know you guys can relate to that i'm not going to say anything more let's get to some surveys this is from the struggle in a sentence survey this is filled out by tech chick and about her love addiction she writes can someone who generally can't feel love or who has never been loved romantically be love addicted and the answer is absolutely yes absolutely um in fact those 
two things can kind of be um, uh, an indicator that 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 there is uh, something that there is something there. Um, my my opinion. Uh, this is the same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Huggy Bear about her depression. She writes, without meds, planning on having a quiet cry in the bathroom at work, but end up still crying at my desk half an hour later, hoping no one notices, but also wanting them to ask so I can get a hug. <laughs> it is so awesome. With meds, who cares about literally everything? About her anxiety. Deciding whether I'll be more anxious when I make the phone call or more anxious if I don't make the phone call and instead just worry about making the phone call. (laughs) That's fantastic. Uh, About having borderline personality disorder. I don't know who I am, so maybe you can just tell me who you want me to be and I'll try that, at least until you leave me like everyone else has. Thank you for that. Uh, this is filled out by April and about having schizophrenia. She writes, all I want to do is sit around and watch TV, which is really common for people with my illness. A snapshot from her life. I hear, uh, I hear for the hundredth time from another mental health care professional that I am so high functioning for a schizophrenic. And I think, does that mean this is the best I can hope for? I'd like to have more for my life than living with my parents and working part-time in between long periods of unemployment after getting fired again. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself preemptively fucking myself. Uh, about his depression, he writes on oh, this one. Oh my God, do I relate to this one. About his depression, he writes, Sitting in my comfy chair in my room, thinking of all the things I would and should do if I only had the energy to stand up. I want to get that macrame and hang it on my wall. I don't know why I go with macrame. I be, you know what? Because I find print on paper to be off-putting. I like to see yarn. Uh, about his uh, alcoholism and drug addiction, he writes, Filling up a Fiji water bottle with vodka and taking it to school, thinking it would make the anxiety go away. Turns out it just made me act like an asshole. Oh. And then compulsive behaviors, he writes, if I'm at home alone and feeling anxious, I sometimes scratch my scalp until my fingers are covered in blood. But it's okay. I always wear a hat. Snapshot from his life. Last week, my therapist suggested I go to a social anxiety support group, so she gave me the email address of the administrator of a group she knew of. I emailed the administrator, and she responded by phone, leaving me a voicemail saying that she'd like me to call her back so we can talk about my issues and find out find out if the group would be right for me. That's not going to happen. Calling a stranger on the phone and answering open-ended questions about myself is just about the most anxiety-provoking thing I can imagine. Just thinking about it makes my anxiety go up to about 8 on a 1 to 10 scale. I emailed the administrator again to explain that I'd prefer to answer her questions via email. She insisted on a phone call. So now I can't go to a social anxiety support group because I'm too afraid to talk on the phone. Fuck me. This is filled out by Thomas and about his anxiety he writes, It feels like my brain is full of cops who've lost their composure. That is that is one for the Hall of Fame. That is fantastic. And then uh, this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself E is for Elephant. And she writes, I've fallen in love with a friend who lives overseas. He's got a lot of demons, but he's a good man and I care deeply for him. 
Today, at the encouragement of a mutual friend, I finally decided to tell him how I really feel. I've never made the first move before. I slowly put together an email, agonizing over every word, finally overcoming all of my anxiety issues and shitty self-esteem enough to hit send. A few hours later, I got a reply. He tells me he loves me too, and that he relapsed and he really needs to borrow $500. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So... <laughs> so... That is when I first felt love, like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. And I think I was 28 and that was the first time I ever experienced that and it was amazing. I'm here with uh, Joe and June, uh, which are aliases that uh, they've decided to use so they can speak more freely. They're boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, from Israel, visiting uh, the States, and I'm so glad that you guys got uh, got in touch with me. I don't even know where to begin because we've exchanged emails, and there's so much to talk about. Right. Um, let's start with the, with your ages. How, how old are you guys? Uh, I'm uh, June, and I'm 29. Mm-hmm. And I'm 35. Okay. And how did you guys meet? <laughs> we actually met on Facebook. Um, really? Right, yeah. I I was lucky she she talked to me. Yeah, I, I, he seemed very interesting. We both work in sort of uh, the, a similar field, the field of language. And so we have a lot of people in common th- that we know in common. And uh, he seemed very interesting. And I asked him to be my friend. And, and we th- talked a little bit on Facebook. And then a couple of weeks later, I just words, bumped into her on the street and recognized really? her. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when you said asked him to be your friend, you friended him. Or did you write, would you be my friend? I don't no, think so. I, no. I just friended him oh, okay. casually. Okay. I mean, yeah. I just thought he would be somebody interesting uh, to have in my feed, you know, since we're in the same field. And we talked a little bit. And she, was it just that? Didn't I look cute or something? You looked cute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm pushing for a compliment. Sure, sure. That's you, awesome. you look no, very, very cute. We worked in cute. the same field. You make it sound so professional. <laughs> you did look very, very cute. But <laughs> I didn't think of uh, pursuing anything via Facebook. Okay. That's, yeah. that's uh, okay. <laughs> so let's start with... Um, did you have? Can I ask a question? Did you ever have couples? Did you ever? Have, have, I have had couples. Was it brother and sister? I think I heard once. I had brother and right, sister. Yeah. I had a boyfriend and girlfriend who had both had um, inappropriate parents, yes. sexually inappropriate oh, parents. I remember right. that. Yeah, um, yeah, that was a very good I episode. Might have even had one more. Uh, I, I apologize that I um, I can't remember okay. offhand. But okay. um, so I guess let's start with. Um, what what your guys' childhoods uh, were like, uh, Joe? You wanna you wanna kind of sure, share first? Yeah, yeah. Where um, were you? Were you raised in Israel? Yeah, I'm, I lived there all my life. Generally, except okay. for tr- little trips abroad, I've been there all my life. Um, so I'm the youngest of uh, five siblings. 
and there's a gap between my older four older siblings were born like in succession and then it was like a 10-year break and then I came along so so I have um, yeah so so but when I was five they were all 15 to 18 or 19 something like that so I basically grew up in a house with uh, two parents and and um, and for it's kind of strange you know looking into it how I how most a lot of the stuff that people feel towards their parents, a, a lot of that I feel towards my older siblings who are, you know, feeling sort of some kind of intermediary role or something. Um, and so it was basically you and then a group of people coming home to do laundry. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were still all living there. Oh, they were? Sure, sure. Uh, most of my, yeah, I mean, about 10 years. So definitely, you know, if I was born, they were 10 to, you know. My oldest sister, I think, was already in the army in the military when I was uh, a little kid. I remember her mostly, you know, in uniform and stuff, coming back and stuff like that. And but mostly Israel I remember rebellious male teenagers. Okay. And uh, all Israeli uh, citizens, there's mandatory service once you're 18, correct? Supposedly. There is. Supposedly. But you we, the two of us didn't go. But but that's that's not the usual, that's not the norm. I mean, yeah, the norm. both of us sort of had to do a lot of things in order to get out of the army. Okay. To, yeah, to dodge it. Yeah, it's difficult to be exempt. But Israeli citizens who are Arab are not required. Israeli right. Arabs aren't. Right. And are, they, are they allowed to be in the military if they want to? I think you might be able to volunteer or something. Right. But probably there's the Druze who are not mm -hmm. exactly Arabs mm -hmm. and not exactly Jews, and they also serve as a group. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, it's voluntary. I mean, Israeli Arabs uh, are sort of treated differently in many ways. Uh, the army being one of them. Israel is an extremely mil militaristic society. So right. And, and extremely prejudiced, I think. Yeah. We have some issues with our country. That's okay. I have some issues with my country. <laughs> I, think, I think all good citizens should have some issue with I their country. So it keeps your conscience kind of, uh, kind of fresh. Yeah. Um, so you grew up um, with this huge gap between you and your siblings. And what, what are some memories or feelings from childhood that, that you can kind of recall? Um, well, first, also, I didn't say that my parents' marriage was pretty dysfunctional. Um, and um, eventually they got divorced when I was 13, which came like a, as a big relief, really, because it was pretty nasty when they were um, fighting a lot and yelling. Um, oh, where to begin? Um... I, I think in general I feel pretty like I was pretty put upon like I feel that I was like a, the butt of jokes from my, my siblings I, w I don't want to uh, make them out to be total monsters or anything and I'm, I'm in good uh, relations with most of them there's one brother that I don't speak with to this day. I mean right now for a few years uh, I cut him out of my life um, but as a little kid yeah you can imagine um, at least the four the three boys were close in age and were teenagers, being people who are rowdy, um, a lot of humor, a lot of, um, and and I kind of felt yeah there was like sometimes practical jokes at my expense kind of thing and I mm. I I think because I was smart I was a smart kid from a young age and I could pick up on stuff and I I I could see it happening I could feel it I could feel a shared joke that I don't get even if I didn't get it I, I saw that it was there and. Um, and, um, yeah, and I basically, I think I grew up, I think I developed sort of a thick skin, not a thick skin, but um, 
like a sense of of projecting cool, like sort of protect, trying to protect my insides from and and, and like act as if I get everything, as if I'm smart, as if I was smart, but I didn't get everything mm-hmm. as a little kid. Um, and it took me eventually a lot of years to get over uh, a lot of insecurities that I had. Um, but yeah, ask me another. I mean, yeah. We'll what, do, what do you what do you feel like you still struggle with in terms of uh, of insecurities? It's funny. I, you asked me before about my fears and loves, and I told you that I I, I felt weird. Like I, in general, now I really feel I'm 35 now, mm-hmm. and I think that around the age of 27, 28, I pretty much broke out of my shell and got over a lot of shit that mm-hmm. I had um, rolling in my mind and. Um, I can tell about the experience that the experiences that I had that helped me to get over stuff. Um, so <laughs> I don't want to f- sound like a total jerk or like a person in total denial, but I don't feel like I'm hounded by fears a lot. Mm-hmm. And even anxieties, I have a little bit of anxieties today, but I, I, I'm trying to tie it to the stuff you said before because it's such disparate things. Mm-hmm. I have some stuff relating to my work. I have some stuff relating to traveling, which we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it, um, you want me to tie it specifically to something about growing up and my brothers? Or? I mean, you can't. You don't. You don't have to tie it to to anything unless it, it's a conscious um, thing that's tied together in your mind. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not looking. F- you know, to pathologize stuff here unless it's something that's kind of clear in somebody's mind, or it's or if it's a thought that pops into one of our heads about how something might be related. I, was, I had a lot of anxiety. I used to have a lot of anxiety, and I had a terrible self-image. And um, it, it led to a, a long period in my 20s where I um, I moved out of the house when I was 17, when I finished my high school. I lived by, my, by myself on and off for a couple of years. And at some point, I went back to live with my parents and just stayed there for a whole bunch of years in my 20s. Um, you were saying you lived in a shed in the back? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, my mom, it wasn't the place where I grew up. My mom uh, married her second husband. And they had a they have an, a house with um, just a shed that was yeah converted for uh, and I just lived there in the back of their house in a small town with no social life at all mm-hmm. and um, somehow that that was that was all I wanted to do for a few years between the ages of about twenty um, one and twenty seven or so. What felt good about it? What felt good about that small? Life is it fair to call it a small life at that point? Well, no social life is you know it's kind of extreme, yeah. um, and also felt good. You know, I mostly made my choices based on like what not to do. Mm-hmm. That was a big thing where I avoided things that I didn't want to do, like and, and I had no idea what what was left. You know, uh, and I guess maybe the few years that I had living by myself were pretty rough on me, and I decided to. Um, I didn't plan to stay there for years, but I um, came back from the city and I was, um, I, I think I had a last job that I worked at that mm-hmm. I was fired from, and and it was very rough for me to uh, find another job, and eventually I became pretty depressed was about it. Was there a it. reason given for why you were fired? Um I'm not very good with authority, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, thankfully now I have a job where I can be pretty independent and uh, do my own thing, not have to work with people uh, very much. So anyway, yeah, I think I would make a terrible employee, and I think it was probably a horrible employee in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember yelling at my boss 
going in and yelling at him, how could you do this and that? Being being right about things is a big, it used to be much bigger for me, but yeah, it's still a big thing for me. If, when I think or know that I'm right about something, I feel so much, you know, fire to argue with people. Do you, so. do you feel the impulse to change people when you see that, that something can be fixed? Is that is that where it comes from? Is it... With somebody I'm angry at or... You know, let's like you telling your boss that it should be this way. What is underneath that is that you think the the company is going to be hurt and you want to protect it? Is it that you think he's being an idiot and you want him to know that he's being an idiot? Is it that you think that look you 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 said you don't want to pathologize things, but I think yeah. this thing is very straight. I mean, when I was a little kid with my older siblings. Uh, at some point, and I, like I said, I was a smart kid, and I real I could figure out things, and I started catching mistakes with other people, namely my parents, my siblings, and I would lord it over them. You know, <laughs> I would, I'd be so it was such a very empowering thing for a little kid to be to know something, and so that's that was pretty straight. Um, you know, it's pretty identifiable. So yeah, so when I uh, for m- many many years, it's this is a, the situation with a boss that I yell at. That's something that. Well, I guess it still exists, but it's an example for, from a teenage guy, from a yeah. 19-year-old guy. Um, but yeah, and I, I'm, one of the things I'm working on and have been working on for many years is realizing that when I'm right about something, it's not everything. You know, something in my mind thinks that when, I'm, when I know that factually something is correct, mm-hmm. I'm just right. Don't you see it? You know, and, I'm tr- and I try not to, when it, in, in things where there are differences of opinion, differences of perspective, that's different. But if I catch a mistake, for instance, which I know is a mistake, and I point it out, look, the dictionary says, then... I have to interject and say <laughs> that um, we often get into discussions or arguments where... I guess my perspective is very individualist. I believe that... Um, truth is relative to a certain extent and I I really feel okay with the idea that each person has his or her own perspective which dictates that person's truth or experience in the mm-hmm. world. I think that Joe's view is uh, a little bit different than mine mm-hmm. um, in that you sometimes feel that there is that this is right and this is wrong and um, I do sometimes get the sense that you try to convince me of something or push me in a certain direction and I also um, I do want to add that I think that there's another sort of element that comes into play uh, with regards to your reasons for doing that um, I think that you often really want to help people yeah and and you want to suggest something to a person and for that person to take your suggestion and, and to uh, be better for it. And uh, when a person doesn't take your suggestion, I think that that's very difficult for you. Does it does it hurt when somebody... And the, the, the other thing that struck me that I just wanted to interject was your earliest pains that you remember yeah. was your older siblings making a joke that you didn't understand so you were out of the know and so when you are in the know now it it must feel very satisfying Mm -hmm. to to not be that little kid that stuff is going around that you that you don't understand so Mm -hmm. you know i think a lot of times as kids we when we find a, a little taste of empowerment 
it can really be um, something that lasts with us for the rest of our lives because yeah. it gives that's, us that you know exactly that initial right. that initial rush. But go ahead, you were gonna, you were going to start to say something. Um, well, the thing that I was dealing with, first of all, at a very young age, yes. You know, you're right. You want, and then I became probably the most annoying kid in the world who would just go around correcting people and trying to be a smart ass. And only later in life realizing how annoying that is and how uh, I have to give a lot more leeway and not try to, you know, and not be, not be pretentious, not be a snob. All of these things were very difficult to deal with, but I've been dealing with them for so long that I think by now I'm, I'm a lot more balanced out as a person. There's a, there's a phrase uh, in the support groups that I go to that is, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Mm-hmm. And I think about that a lot. Yeah. Or in Israel, they say, do you want to be right or do you want to be smart? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> um, anything else you want to touch on before we go to uh, uh, June? So many things. Um, we'll come back. We, we're, we're not <laughs> done with you. <laughs> All righty. Go ahead. So, uh, June, tell us about your your childhood. Um, it had a lot of things in it, mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of details. I guess maybe uh, if I start with the sort of broader details, I was born in Israel. Um, and uh, after a few months after I was born, um, my mom and my biological father moved to the States, to New York. And um, we lived there until I was four. And then we, uh, my, my mom and my biological father split up. And my mom and I returned to Israel. Um, and then when I started the third grade, we moved to South Africa because my mom had then started a relationship with my dad. Uh, he's not my biological father, sure. but he's the one who raised me. And he's South African. Um, and uh, so you saw South Africa in the midst of the apartheid craziness. It was afterward, but yeah, it was still a very. Has it been that long? Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, yeah. I'm so old. No, no, no. But I mean, I really understand that that feeling because officially or maybe legally, apartheid is is done, but the repercussions are still so ingrained in that society. Um, that it sometimes feels like we're still in apartheid. Um, so how many, what years did you live in South Africa? From the age of eight until the age of 16. And then uh, we came back to Israel and I finished up high school and I moved back to South Africa by myself, uh, this time to Cape Town to study. Mm-hmm. And I was there for four years as a student. And then... That was about seven years ago that I came back to Israel, and I've been there ever since. And you didn't have any desire to move to Kosovo at, at, at any point? <laughs> yeah, we should consider that. Let's Kosovo, go there. Kosovo, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Antarctica. Let's, uh, you know, go what's, all out. What's going down in Antarctica? <laughs> well, I don't know, but... Um, There's a lot of trouble there with penguins. Yes, yeah. the penguins are, are very prejudiced against each other. So you've you've had some uh, some serious uh, experience in living in conflicted countries mm-hmm. where there is... Um, animosity between the tribes, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, and very diverse populations. And uh, for me personally, it's been an amazing experience and a very fundamental experience as far as who I am. Um, And also sort of very much suited to my family and to my parents and their approach in life. Um, I come from a very 
I guess, cosmopolitan family. My parents are very liberal, open-minded. From my dad's side, uh, my grandfather was an anti-apartheid activist and he was in prison. And so it's very, very ingrained um, into the type of education that I got at home. Um, But I think like like you say at at the top of the show, it's the battles in our heads. Yeah. Yeah, the battles... Yeah, that's true. So what were the battles in your head as a as a kid? What what were the um you know, clearly your your biological dad divorcing your mom or the other way around? Mm-hmm. What what did that feel like? Do you, were you close to him? Was it painful? Did you not Um I don't remember it being painful. I think the the most vivid experience that I remember from that time it was experience over the course of a few years is a sense that this person just dropped off the face of the earth because we lived all together uh, in New York and then my mom and I returned to Israel and I didn't see him for two years and then he visited and then I didn't see him again for a whole year and and we weren't I mean he didn't really make contact that often mm-hmm. so it was really it wasn't that it was like a painful separation and I was involved in not at all I mean um, just a person that disappeared into a black hole did you ever feel like his because I'm getting the feeling that he was not somebody who who gave his children the sense that they're incredibly important not at all do you did you take that on personally did you have did that affect how you felt about yourself or did you just think oh he's just kind of a dick who's into himself um look i was really really young i was four years old when they separated so and it's sort of something that evolved how long until the uh your father came along um i think i was four when my mom and i moved back to israel and i was seven when we met my dad. So three years of not yeah. having that uh, male figure. Right. Although my mom dated and she had, I think, about two serious boyfriends that I knew and that, you know. Do you remember feeling anything when your father, as you call him, came into your into your life, mm-hmm. replacing your biological father, feeling like, oh, this guy's different Um, Or was it just the memories of your biological father? You were so young that there really wasn't any, nothing had really kind of registered. I think a lot did register for me from a very young age. I mean, my all my memories start from the age of three. Wow. So, yeah, so I I was a very, very astute, very sensitive child, and, and I'm still very, very sensitive. So things do register and resonate with me, and a lot goes on for me inside. Um, But, uh, are you basically asking about the role of my biological father and the role of my dad and how they correspond? Of, in terms of how you felt and how it affected your self-esteem and feeling loved and seen and mm-hmm. heard and felt. And I was think... there a sense that with the second father mm-hmm. that suddenly, oh, this male figure. No. No. It w- it's very complex. I think that, first of all, let me maybe start by saying that um, when my biological parents separated... My mom became a single parent. Uh, my biological father was gone as far as I was concerned. Um, and I don't know that I really understood where he was, 
why I don't see him, and I don't know that I, I really could formulate those questions. Um, and, and then suddenly with the resources sort of really changing drastically, my mom had to work like three jobs. It must have been really, she was also really young. Uh, I was born when they both were 24 years old. So this is a 28-year-old woman who has now become a single parent, and she also lost her parents uh, within uh, round about that time frame. And I think she was dealing with a lot. I think that she was depressed. And so. And you were an only kid? I was an only child. Yeah. So what that meant for me in terms of my experience is that I felt very, very lonely, like just so lonely. And I think looking back now as an adult and knowing what adult feelings are like, I know that at, as a child, as a really young child, I dealt with some adult-sized depression. I was really, really, really depressed and uh, felt really lonely and felt really neglected. Um, and yeah, that was that was very complex. And so, how did you try to soothe that loneliness as a as a kid? Um, I'm not sure. I I was a very creative child, so I think that what that did is that it forced me to become very independent. Um, I know that from a really young age, you could put me anywhere and I would survive. Um, and I don't need anybody. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I had to. I had to survive. Yeah. I, I had very limited resources. Don't help me. I'll do. I'll do it myself. Um, yeah, that too. But also, I mean, I was alone a lot, and I had to survive. So I think that your, I became, your imagination became a, a, a friend to you. I think it always was. Um, I was always very, very creative, and I loved art, and I loved to play, and um, I had—I always had a very colorful internal life. You shared with me in your email that you were taken advantage of. Yeah. Um, you know, I couldn't help but but think. Man, what is it about lonely kids that they just give off like this lighthouse signal to predators that, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but who, who are you comfortable talking yeah, I about am. the, I, I am. About I, the sure. abuse? It just, I've, it, it seems like 90% of the people I know that were violated as kids, they were looking for somebody mm -hmm. to pay attention to them and it was used against them. Do you know, I I don't feel that that relates to me so much because from what I gather now, I understand that this, this happened when I was about three years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, at that time, if I was three years old, that means that my parents were still married, my biological parents. And it means that it wasn't that I was a lonely kid that nobody was looking after and a predator saw that opening and went in there. Um, what happened was maybe a little bit unusual in the sense that, um, well, I'll go into the details. Uh, so, you know, I'm just warning in case there's somebody listening who, who this might be a trigger for. Um, but, uh, Which I always forget to do. I, I would probably be having to do it every five minutes on yeah, the podcast, uh, yeah. but um, go ahead. Um, in terms of the details, uh, from I mean, what I remember is that my biological father and I were in his mother's 
house in Israel. So we must have been on holiday in Israel. And uh, we went for an afternoon nap. And uh, it was summer, so I think we were in our underwear. And I was curious about his anatomy, and I wanted to touch. And instead of using that as a way of teaching me, um, you know, privacy and boundaries and that you as a person are allowed and entitled to decide whether or not someone else will touch your body, um, it prob- I think it felt good to him and he encouraged me to continue. And I remember uh, that at one point he even uh, got up to close the door and he said, um, Uh, So I'm just going to get up and close the door and then I'll come back and you can continue. I'm not going to say the words, but you can continue touching daddy. Uh, Not say the words. The specific words that he used are very painful to me to say, so I don't want to repeat them. Okay. But basically Uh, that's, that's what he was saying. And as you remember that, what... What thoughts and feelings come come up in you? I just feel... First of all, I'm crying. Um, then or now? Now. Then you I... Look like, you almost look like you're, you're going to, to get sick. The look on your face that came over was like nausea. Yeah, I feel really sick. Um, it, it sickens me. It almost... I mean, one of the strong feelings that I have uh, when I remember that is that, you know, when, say, parents get divorced and one parent stops being involved in the child's life. So, I mean, that parent is basically communicating to the child that they don't care about them. And when something like this happens, it's even worse. It's like, not only do I not care about you, but... I, I'll just use you as toilet paper, you know? You you just mean fuck all to me. You're not even a person. You're not even You don't human. matter. It's you, the... you don't matter. I'll step on you and won't even think twice about it. And it's so hard for that child to understand that it's that parent's or that adult's sickness and their own issues that it's not you personally, that that it's they view all people... As objects that can benefit or hinder them. Right. But you, it doesn't matter because it's what you're feeling. And I think it does matter because it affects the way that you frame that situation in your mind. And I think that that is very valuable. And that's something that obviously with time that's evolved because, you know, this was a memory that I've always had, just like my other memories. And um, it started to come out, and I mean, I think that at a certain stage, uh, probably in my early to mid-teens, I started to notice that this memory was different, that maybe there was something bit off with this memory, and started thinking about that every now and then. And I remember... Did it start out as fuzzy and then become clearer? No. It's always, it was always there. It's, it was always there. My memories in general are quite clear. Uh, and what did you think of when that memory would come 
to you, would, would it be that, oh, yes, that was something that actually happened, or this is a figment of my imagination? I always I always felt that this was something, I always knew that this was something that happened. Did you tell anybody? Yeah, well, when it started to sort of come up in my mind in my early to mid-teens, I started to feel a little confused about it, and then as it sort of came up again and again to my conscious mind, I remember that when I was about 17, I told my mom a little bit of what happened that there was some something off and I remember that she um, she sort of brushed it off I mean I think that she didn't really know how to deal with it or something and or maybe it didn't correspond with her uh, knowledge that she had about this person and I think she sort of tried to brush it off and and I sort of let it let it lie for for a bit, but it's something that kept coming up. And uh, then, um, in my early twenties, I I was uh, I volunteered for a few years at uh, as part. Of, I've always volunteered at different uh, places, and I spent about three years volunteering um, in Tel Aviv at a hostel for um, uh, at-risk youth, and. Um, I think that we had a few youths there who had experience with with this kind of um, uh, these kinds of sexual assaults, and there was the option that the hostel uh, uh, offered for us to uh, have a course that would be uh, delivered by uh, a center for um, for sexual assault victims and and that kind of thing. And uh, you know, I was interested in that and and. I was I just sort of did that course. I was uh, a student there in that course, and then things started clicking, and I became more confused. And at a certain point, I what was confusing? It's like imagine you have your box of memories from your life, and suddenly one memory becomes. It's almost like. If all your memories are are in in sepia, you know that that uh, sort of tea color, and suddenly one of them has a stronger and stronger color, and it's angrier and angrier, and you're not sure what's going on there. Um, so I remember um, asking the, um, the the I guess the facilitators if I could speak to them because I was very confused. Um, and I was also very aware at that time of of the the fact that sometimes a person can remember something incorrectly or something like that. And because this was a very severe thing, I didn't want to maybe bring up something if it wasn't true. And what they said to me was very clear. Um, this happened. You remember that it happened. It is it would be labeled anywhere as molestation, as uh um, something that a father did to his daughter that was not okay um, in in any sense of the word, in, in any situation. It's never okay. And it happened. That happened and it was not okay. And I think of all the, the um, adults that blame themselves as children because they were curious and they didn't know what they were. They think that there was a consent on their part, even if they initiated something. Right. They don't know it's up. You know, like you hear about the the twelve year old girl that comes on to the, you know, 
27-year-old guy yeah. and she blames herself. And it's like, no, she didn't understand that. That's like asking an adult, hey, can I drive this semi-truck? Right. Yeah, the 12-year-old wants to drive the semi-truck, right. but the adult knows what is involved right. in driving a semi-truck. Right. And the, that, that child doesn't, doesn't know that. And I'm glad that yeah. you can see that you were just a kid, that it, it, it had nothing... What you wanted out of it and what your dad wanted out of it were two completely different things. Right. And also he very much failed to step up into his parenting role at that moment. Um, and his parenting role would have been to use this as an educating tool, uh, not only to protect me, but also to use that as a way of educating me about some really important things like my body, like boundaries, um, so that, you know, if, God forbid, that were to happen again sometime, that, that, you know, there was some inappropriate touching, that I'd know how to frame that. Yeah. Uh, Joe, what comes up for you as you hear, and I know you've, you've heard this from her before, but what comes up for you when this person that you love is describing this this. Um, it makes me, it reminds me how much I love her a lot. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, because I know it's the most painful memory and the most, the, the worst feelings that you have. Um, and that it's awesome that you can talk about it and, and be, and, and, you know, delve into those things, not be, not be afraid to delve into those things. You know, it can be painful right now to think about things that happened back then and, um, um, and I feel really great to be able to support to support June in her um, dark, harder moments. Uh, it gives me a good feeling to be able to help, and that w that's one of the things that really work. I think in our relationship, we found a really nice equilibrium where we uh, support each other. I think mm -hmm. would that be right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you hear him say that. What, what do you think or feel? Uh, I feel thank you, and at the same time, I have uh, some sort of desire for you to be angry. To be at, angry. To be angry at him. To be angry at him. Now that's very. I mean, I'm not sure. I think that's something that I'm projecting onto you. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Maybe I want you to protect me more mm -hmm. vehemently, and I'm not sure that that's what you should really do. I'm just saying what comes up for me. No, it's interesting that you have because I'll, I'll like bring up a completely different situation. Um, June uh, used to be stalked by someone. Or at least one person, I think even more than one person, used to like call you on the phone. And there was one guy that stalked me for over a year, but there were right, a few but, others that but, sort of... But the one, um, I was going to say, you used to have phone calls, unwanted phone calls yeah. from like some guy trying to pick you up yeah. while we were together. Right. And yeah. you would hang up on the guy. Mm -hmm. And one time that happened, she, I was in the next room and I heard the phone ringing. She picked it up and she, and she was like, I don't remember if you said anything or if you just hung up. And I was like, who was that? And she said, it was the guy stalking me the guy harassing me i was like you should have put me on the phone i really wanted to talk to this guy and explain to him that uh i'm gonna kill him mm -hmm. <laughs> and rip his head off 
And 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 June said, uh, "No, I know the I know how to deal with these matters. You don't give them anything. You hang up on them, even if you respond." They want it eggs them on, but I really felt the need. I really wanted to be in this role to have this opportunity. I saw that as an opportunity to, um, yeah, to have some sort of function as uh, the guy who's going to protect her from from this asshole. Mm-hmm. Uh, It's very interesting this this dynamic or this topic of, um, from my perspective, for example, wanting you to. protect me and to to be male and stuff and on the other hand my very very strong sense of independence that that wants to to take up space um, it's very interesting that that relationship between uh, those two right we've been together three years and one of the things that comes up is um Uh, where do we allow each other to help each other and let each other in mm-hmm. and where do we have our independence and our uh, deal with it yourself yeah it's so obvious that you guys have done counseling together <laughs> it's it's really cool to see I mean you're the way that you guys are able to share what you're feeling without putting it on the other person e- even if it doesn't make sense logically you know like you you having these two conflicting feelings mm-hmm. at the same time that you're able to share such a complicated thing with him mm-hmm. um, and for you not to want a problem solve but just go okay this is June wanting to be heard and felt and yeah. my job here is to is to listen that goes both ways too because sometimes she comes to me with something with some issue and I'm like well you should do this and this and she's like and it becomes like an argument because what she really wants from me is to just to, just to hear her and understand it and that's it yeah. and sometimes I have an answer uh, and I want it to be heard also yeah do you June do you ever get angry or protective about things that have happened or are happening? To him where you feel like you want to protect him yeah um, what are some of those that come up um, some of his experiences as as a boy um, he didn't deserve to be treated that way he was very neglected and I think he was a really good boy and a really lovable boy and I wish that he would have had a more nurturing and I wish that he would have got everything that he deserved and needed and um, yeah I think as an adult he can take care of himself I really feel that he's very very capable um, I do sometimes get very angry at people say uh, in his she work, wants to kill people on my yeah, behalf too, yeah. in, in his work if somebody is being just a twit to him you know I, I get really angry irritated and angry and I have to sort of not I think he gets upset with me when I say oh you know that person is such an ass or something like that I have to sort of tone that down but I do have those feelings no it's fun that you want to kill for me really <laughs> <laughs> you know it's it, it's funny how our partner can see the little kid in us so much clearer than we can see the little kid in us mm-hmm. and it's really kind of beautiful in a way because you That's where so much so often I feel like that little kid is the one that's driving the bus in our lives right. and forming our decisions and our feelings and how we react to right. people and they mm-hmm. can tell us all they want that mm-hmm. hey this is happening and this is this and you should do that but 
for me, I found that the most soothing thing is somebody just sounds cheesy, but just giving that kid a hug. Yeah. Even if you don't know that that person is hugging that kid in you, mm-hmm. um, it being listened to and felt and understood and not trying to be problem solved. Yeah. I think in general, listening to people is uh, one of the most overlooked. Um, even just let I mean just let them just let them talk yeah. most people will um. and also something else that's very important is that I think something that we forget that's even more overlooked is for say if we're in the role of the listener um, to have faith that that person knows how to lead themselves in the way that would be best for them even if that way is not what we would do in our lives to have faith in that person that that person knows how to find the best solution for themselves what if it's an extreme example where the person is like i need to get into heroin Mm -hmm. that's going to solve all my problems what i mean clearly that's you know that's a ridiculous example but what Mm -hmm. if it's we're like I need to get back with this abusive person. They okay. they beat me, but mm-hmm. they love me and they always apologize. The f- what what the about first an example thing, like that? I think the first thing to remember is non-judgment. Okay, at this moment, that person is experiencing this thought or this feeling. And you know what? It, it may not be, uh, I don't know, the thing that, that I would advise, but maybe there is something else that needs to be learned in that relationship in order to enable that person to move on for good. I don't know. I mean, I agree. I agree. I we think can't, everybody has their own journey. Right, we can't interject ourselves and our values into that person's life. And I think it's different if somebody asks your opinion and mm-hmm. they come to you. But yeah, right. I, I agree. I think a lot of times people need to have the dignity of their own bottom, mm-hmm. is it as it were, mm-hmm. um, to learn it themselves, to have made their own mistakes so they can go, you know what? I really need help. Yeah. You know, I think maybe in, in this kind of a situation, um, the most involved thing that a person should do sometimes is to maybe to to say, hey, you know, um, wh- to ask the person what would be most helpful to them um, or maybe to to let them know of a resource that if they want to, they could go to that resource. Um, Instead of saying, get in the car right now, I'm taking yeah. you to a women's shelter. Right, because because you know what? I mean, I know especially for uh, people who've experienced sexual abuse, but I'm sure for all sorts of situations, the most important thing for that person is to have back their sense of agency and their power back after a situation like that. So... I mean, if there is a person who has been raped and who wants to go back to their rapist, and that's something that does happen, um, I think that I, I don't want to say that there is a, a surefire way to handle that type of situation because each person is different. But I'm saying that maybe um, pinning that person to to a chair and tying them down so that they don't go to see the rapist again maybe that's not the best way because then you're you're perpetuating that dynamic even more you're taking mm-hmm. away that person's power even more um or for example uh with uh, say uh, sexual abuse trials in court okay those things need to be the decision of the the person who has experienced that that's the most important thing for that situation. 
even if the person who is being tried, it may mean them going and abusing um, other people? That's, I think that's a matter of opinion. I have to say that, um, I mean, I sort of, although I abhor the thought of people being loose who would perpetuate again, abhor that thought. Um, I do feel that the the victim in question needs to be allowed to have their power mm-hmm. and to have their agency back. And to not have to go through something if that's going to be traumatizing yes, to them again. Yes, the, that, la- the last thing they need yeah. is to is to do that. And that can be the, that that trauma of going to trial can can be a really really bad one. I wish there was a way that people could call the FBI or a local police or something and just have them like put an eye out mm-hmm. to say, hey, this you should know. I've been traumatized. I'm not going to go to court. I'm not yeah. going to press charges, but mm-hmm. know that this person is out there doing these things mm-hmm. and I don't want it to happen to somebody else and mm-hmm. I apologize that maybe even I don't apologize, just mm-hmm. I can't I can't go through with that. But I, I wish there was a way that you could protect that person from being traumatized again mm-hmm. and something to be done to protect that, that predator, predator from, from doing something again. I think that legally that type of thing uh, becomes sort of tricky because... Uh, you know, then where do you draw the line between protecting the public and yeah. still maintaining the the rights of that uh, the person who is at that point a supposed predator? I, I suppose that's that's one of the costs of having a free willing democracy. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, it's better in Israel. What you usually read about in the papers is uh, battered wife murdered. Uh, Many many complaints already filed to police by the family, by the neighbors, and everything, and and then she was murdered by her husband anyway. Not That's to what mention, you hear. not to mention Katsav, for example. Who oh yeah, is, Israel had a president. Who, a, well, it's not this, like the an American rapist. president, but yeah, the yeah. Rape, he's in jail for rape now. Yeah. Uh, he's not really even in jail. He's yeah, with, with vaca- he's in a deluxe jail with vacations. Yeah, it's yeah. appalling, just appalling. Uh, Joe, in your email, you talked about having a, a terrible fear of intimacy and struggling with I, I I don't want to put words in your mouth but with orgasms <laughs> well yeah uh, well I didn't see I don't think that I saw it as a fear of intimacy I suppose it was yeah I, I have a hard time framing things in terms of fear like I don't want to even think about myself as a I person I think that's the phrase fears. you used though was that it, it was uh, something it was either fear of intimacy or difficulty with imis- intimacy but it yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it definitely was. It's just weird to hear. Also, maybe because of English, you know, I'm used to going to a therapist in Hebrew and maybe hearing it in, the, in another language is, uh, you hear it f- afresh all of a sudden. But yeah, it definitely was. Um, I definitely had a fear of, uh, of intimacy and it took me, but the funny thing is that I did get over it, I think. Um, I stayed a virgin to a pretty late age um, and I basically ran away from women for a long time from girls when I was a teenager when I was in my 20s uh, I didn't I just didn't want anything to do with anything I was I was pretty sort of petrified even to just like maybe kiss or anything like that what what was the fear underneath it that you would fail that you were going to be overwhelmed looking back at it or yeah, yeah. Um, it's hard to say it's hard to say I think my my fears defined my life in a in a big way like I said I mostly 
define my life by all the things I didn't do and I didn't know what was left. I was afraid of social interaction. I was afraid of uh, a lot of things. And uh, after, you know, in my 20s, slowly trying to dip my toe in, in the pool and stuff, when it didn't work, it was very traumatic. And I pulled out and ran away for another couple of years. How that would kind of it thing. not work? Would it be a failed relationship? Would it no, 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 no not, not even as close as that. But I was v- really terrified. I guess I made out with a girl when I was 17, and she stayed over and just spent the night without sex. And that was um, very powerful for me. Like In a good way or a bad way? Both, of course. I mean, it just you know, overwhelms you as a... As a what, was I the mean, ba- what was the bad part of it? Well, first of all, I was 17, which means I was already nearing the end of high school where a lot of tensions with girls around me and all sorts of things that didn't happen that really sort of uh, messed with me, I guess. And by the time... Uh, I had a lot of negative, terrible thoughts about, I could never do this, this isn't for me, I couldn't... Nobody would ever want me, um, that sort of thing. And so I had this thing, which is also like a cliche, I guess, but when I, for the first time, made out with this girl and she stayed over at my place, I was like, thank you. I, like, I felt the urge to thank her a lot. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for, thank you for making so out sweet. with me. Uh, That's so sweet. That's so heartbreaking <laughs> and sweet yeah. at the same time. <laughs> yeah, but then I took it. Look, I have a big critical voice. I'm trying to <laughs> not <clears throat> listen to it too much. But like, I made it weird a bit li- like later and then days afterwards. I was like telling people she was my girlfriend even though without clearing it with her first kind of thing like an inexperienced guy you know I think that's a uh, pretty normal assumption yeah, that but the girl makes out and stays the night yeah <laughs> but then it sort of didn't like we only yeah she made out we made out and she stayed the night and but she, I think it was like it's interesting it was I think it was about a week or two before she went abroad and maybe that's something that facilitated it maybe I wanted it to be something that at least I'll know when it's over or something. I don't did know. You, did, or, did it leave you feeling foolish? It, it left. Well, you know, first of all, I had like delusions of grandeur, and I'm awesome, and I'm this. And then when she, and then as I remember it, I told a mutual friend of ours that she's my girlfriend now. And then they talked between them, and she probably was like, he said that. You know, I was 17, she was 21, so she was more experienced than me, and um, and and then it pretty much ended sort of not that great and then I sort of backed away from girls entirely again mm-hmm. I basically just needed uh, to conquer this thing of sex and women because there's a limit to how to loneliness there's a your, your body just needs it you know you, you can only masturbate so much I mm-hmm. think um, um, what are your numbers I'll give you mine <laughs> <laughs> we'll tally them up <laughs> Ah, uh, lordy. So uh, in one, so I I moved to the city, and I s- um, at first also uh, um, I I thought I would have a much worse fear of it. I, I mean, at first I would just say no again. Slowly but gradually, I know this girl came on to me, and she was also it's a shared flat, so people are just mm-hmm. there. You don't even have to go anywhere, and she was a friend of the flatmates. And she came on to me in a very sort of touching way, but a very direct way. And again, I was a jerk just out of not knowing and not being experienced. But I was like, um, okay, listen, you want to come? But I'm not having sex with you. Like, and she was... Um, because you had por- performance anxiety or uh, just morally, spiritually, you weren't ready to have sex with her? 
I think it's performance and anxiety. It's both. I was, I really just, again, this, this feeling that I described earlier of, it's not a feeling that makes any kind of sense, but there it is of, I'm just not, what, with me? She's going to have sex with me? I thought that I had a lot of time, a lot of hard time um, coming to terms with, way back when, when I was probably a teenager, was that women want sex too. It just felt like something that you want, and you're going to impose on them mm. and put yourself ahead of them. That's, that's the Even kind of stuff. Even if she's hitting on you. I guess, yeah, yeah. I just, again, it makes no sense. Was, there, was there a feeling inside you that she doesn't understand the real me, and if I get intimate with her, she's going to see all my flaws, and I'm going to be discovered? Something. I think it's something like that, yeah, yeah. You just somehow... Because I developed this shell, mm-hmm. it just felt like anything inside this shell is, uh, you, you got to hide it at all costs. And then, and then, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to explain. You know, it's I, hard I, to go back into the teenage mind and see what I thought then. I, I used to almost be repulsed by a woman that would show interest in me because it's mm-hmm. like, ooh, do you have <laughs> no taste? <laughs> <laughs> I had that in it, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. So is, is it still one of the things you shared with me in your email is that you can only achieve orgasm by masturbating. Is that's that... true. That's uh, Sadly, that's true t- uh, to this day. And how how does that affect your guys' relationship? How... Just talk talk about it, and I'd, I'd like both of you to, to mm-hmm. share this. And thank you for sharing that, that with me. I, I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, you know, that's something that I sort of tried to read about, hear about, and I, never, I would never hear about it. And... Um, um, I really that that's you know the, uh, you're not alone kind of thing. I was I really felt alone about that one, and I still to this day haven't really heard about that a lot. What oh, about about about, people? Pe- about guys who don't uh, come uh, during sex? I may I, have heard about it once. I or have twice, to say but. that that I've uh, had experiences with at least one other person who who his whole life was like that. Like he, yeah, he, that was his, you know, yeah, and who who can't uh, can't reach orgasm through intercourse. I heard, uh, if I can, I don't know if I can refer to like another podcast, but on Dan Savage's podcast that I listen mm-hmm. to sometimes, they almost ref- talked about it, but not exactly. He sa- he has, you know, he has these, these names for things. He call it like he calls it the death grip syndrome <laughs> or something. Because, but he relates it to a physical thing that guys are too used to masturbating in a certain way with a lot of friction and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and then a vagina doesn't do it for them because it's, you know, wet and soft and they're used to hard and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, with me, it's not a physical thing because at first I thought, you know, okay, I got over this hurdle of having sex with women, um, but orgasms weren't happening. And uh, would, I just, you st- would you stay hard? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I stay hard a lot, but just I really am focused on the, on the woman's orgasm a lot and I get a kick out of that. And, which uh, which is nice, I have to say. Yeah, I mean that's like in that's, many ways that's like that's a, a, good, a dream. That's an advantage. Do you did you or do you ever feel any um, guilt or um, like if you were different, he would be reaching orgasm? No, I'm I'm hot, dude. I'm really <laughs> <laughs> that's so yes, awesome. she is. I'm, I'm that that sort You're of. You're both very attractive people. I well, should know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I say that so in yourself. humor, but but I have to say that um, I don't feel guilt, but I I do want him to also have that satisfaction that I have. 
Um, it's something that I I think I want that more than you do sometimes. It's true. That's uh, look. Uh, that's something that I still yeah. I if, during sex I really just want my partner to have an orgasm and I and I'm fine and I and in my mind because I started masturbating when I was about nine. So in my I think in my mind an orgasm is something that you do to yourself and that's it. Uh, I Lord knows I tried. Mm-hmm. Uh, in you know all sorts of ways to to have uh, you know with did, women. Did you experience any any type of violation or or something as a kid? Because nine, um, I know women generally s- masturbate more as as children, th- at least that I hear about, than than guys do. And yeah. most of the guys that I hear about that masturbate before puberty. Some they were either shown it. It seems very rarely they discover it on their own. I don't. I, I was. I figured it out. It was very smart. You did. You were smart. I had a leap Jesus. of. Uh, no, it's. Uh, I, I didn't figure it out till I was fifteen, and I was like, "Where's this been all my life?" <laughs> <clears throat> well, maybe also religion teaches you to not go there and not touch it, and then maybe that delays it a few years. But I don't think that's true. I think a lot of people start. I was not nine and a half, first of all, and also mm-hmm. I think that's more. I think that's the age a lot of people start masturbating. Okay. Uh, I don't think that it has to do anything with any kind of abuse. I did have a hard time growing up, uh, just mentally and with a with a tough situation in my house with uh, you know everything that was going on there. But uh, I don't see it, it as to a, soothe to soothe yourself when, uh, or was it just strictly a I'm horny? Huh. First of all, when you're if you do it before puberty, it's not even. I don't think. Um, you don't even. I'm not sure you're related to women and stuff like that. You just do it because it feels good, and that's it. it. It's not very complicated at that age. What do you think about when you're nine and you masturbate? That's a good question. Skipping uh, school. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. I'm not even sure it, it involves. It involves. I think that you start fantasizing about sex and women when you're during puberty or the beginning of puberty. I think before puberty, it's just a fun thing to like a fun pastime. I was fantasizing about uh, girls. As early as like six, wow. I remember like th- every girl I would see thinking about what she looked like and naked. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Look, I, I may have, because obviously as a guy with older siblings, you see a lot of, or even not, even with parents, you mm. just see stuff that you're not supposed to see at such a young age. So you see your dad's Playboy, which I did. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, I remember the first time we used to have pirate cable TV. It wasn't, it was just like a local operation, like a neighborhood thing. Somebody with a VHS thing with cables running across rooftops. And they had porn movies at uh, like Fridays at midnight or 1 a.m. And uh, so that was the first time I saw like a porn porn movie and with friends. I remember I had friends over because I had this pirate thing that we didn't pay for. They must have thought you were the greatest <laughs> friend Oh, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> we developed this whole thing about how not to get caught if somebody comes sure. in. <laughs> and we had like a like a special uh, button on the remote that if somebody comes in you push that and it's fine <laughs> and uh, and yeah but I remember seeing a lot of jizz and actually going in and feeling nauseous from watching uh, too much ejaculation and, and going yeah. to barf in the bathroom uh, really? yeah we didn't yeah it was pretty yeah once you yeah the first time I think you see that kind of stuff and your brain goes ooh you know when you're, yeah. when you're a kid sure um what was your? Do you, uh, well, well, let me ask you this question: Do you have you found ways like mutual masturbation for you to be able to have an orgasm oh, when, sure. when she's in the room? Yeah, we don't. I don't have a problem doing it with with my partner. Uh, um, you know, it's great. We we we. But you know, I would love for her to get me off. I mean, that would be great. 
Um, I'd, I'd love that too, really. Yeah, and yeah. seriously, even you more than me, because the, kind, the dynamic that we sort of have is, look, I, I masturbate. I just do it with porn sometimes. Yeah. And uh, probably more often than we have sex, mm-hmm. you know, truth be told. Yeah. And, but for me, look, I've been, because I've been doing it my entire life, um, nowadays it even is something, just a soothing thing. You know, if it's an afternoon and, and uh, it's after lunch and I'm tense and nervous and, uh, and, I, and I'm sick of my work, what you going to do? I mean, it's, uh, it's just there and you just do it. And you just even do it, even if you're not even horny, it, it just has so many benefits. You know, even sometimes you, 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 you want to go to sleep, you want to have a nap in the afternoon. Why not? I mean, go ahead. I hope it doesn't interfere with our sex life. I mean, I mean, what do you? What that's do you, an open thing. We don't. Yeah, June. What do you think as you as you hear him share that about him masturbating to to porn more than you guys uh, have sex? Did any anything kind of? Um, I don't. You, I I'm pretty okay with that. I mean, I know that a lot of couples. Um, sort of feel very uncomfortable about the other person masturbating or um, maybe that's about being sexual in a way that doesn't include them um, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that but because um, you don't feel excluded sexually you feel like your sexual needs are, are, are being met I, I do I do feel maybe a little bit excluded in the sense that um, I I don't see anything wrong with the situation as it is, but I would like to maybe make it a little more balanced. So maybe um, if some of the masturbation energy were directed into our sort of uh, sexual experiences together, that I would be very happy with that as a goal. We, I think we need to work on that, and I think that's totally doable. Yeah, it's there's still I guess for me not exactly shame around it, but. I, it's like, yeah, I sort of feel like it's my thing and uh, I, I don't know. need to delve into it, which is a wrong feeling. We should. It is our thing, kind of. I know that you, you that you feel, um, sometimes you feel that you, like, it almost does feel to me like you're a little bit ashamed and you want to uh, masturbate and, and watch porn and not be seen. I don't feel ashamed, but I'll tell you what, if, uh, like, like, uh, it's my orgasm while we're together like it's some mm-hmm. kind of masturbation scenario mm-hmm. uh, I either I mean I, I, I'm capable of coming but it's nowhere near as good for me right I, I don't know if I feel like a pressure to get there f- faster um, um, I it's, really it's really just it, 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 in my mind it's just something that I do by myself you know what I mean yeah. mm-hmm. it, which is which is logical since it's been that way for so many years yeah. and, and you also you have uh, thought patterns that become very ingrained like for example uh, nowadays I know that uh, kids start watching porn at a really young age really young ages and that's sort of very much removed from reality and then when they experience reality that's nowhere near what they've seen yeah. even though when I was a kid I, 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 I remember my uh, one of my older brothers telling me uh, about porn by the way just so you know you know probably even before I ever saw porn just so you know you're gonna see porn and that's not what it really is uh, that's not what sex is like that's just porn and I think that's a very important thing that somebody really, told me really really yeah. important yeah um, so do you do you ever go into your head either of you when you're during sex during sex uh, to try to 
bring about an orgasm? I mean, in June, it sounds like that's not necessary for you, but... Uh, no, that's, I don't generally do that when when we're together. Um, I, I, I do it. Yeah. I do it. And Sadly, I would love to just be present. Again, a lot... I, I, like I said, when sex sex was new to me, only when I was about twenty seven, so mm-hmm. it's not even that long ago. I Have you ever been able? Sad. I don't. I don't think that's sad. I think that. Did I, did I say it was sad? No, you said sadly you do yeah. go into your into your head. Oh, I see. Okay. And and I don't think that's sad. I mean. Well, I would love to just be present. What I was gonna say is that during a lot of experimentation and sex and a lot of sort of just you know, um, what's the word? Um, just a lot of casual sex that I used to have. I used to experiment sort of just a lot with what am I going to think about how physically I'm going to do it, but also mentally what I'm going to, what, how am I going to be? Have you ever been able to achieve uh, orgasm through intercourse? Never, never once, mm. never once. No, um, I think I was close once with one of my first sexual experiences. Uh, not the ones I mentioned, but but during like my casual sex phase. And are these without condoms as well? What uh, without condoms also. I had sex with this one girl without a condom. I felt myself about to come. I said, you know, stop it right now because there's no condom. And and that's the only time where I almost came inside of a woman. And then, I, you know, later I started thinking about maybe, you know, maybe that was like a formative experience. Like if I'd let that happen that one time, I would have gotten over the hurdle. Mm-hmm. And um, and with condoms, it was even w- much worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was never, never even close to, you know. It's, it's an issue. You look, mm-hmm. I... I, I um, but the thing is, our as a couple, I mean, I think again, it works. It sort of works for us, you know. We could fine tune it and we can work on it. But um, for me, it's sort of it's just so convenient and manageable that it just works the way it is. You know, you know I, mean? I feel like almost any kind of sexual proclivity or wh- whatever issue can be worked on if both couples really want to work forward mm-hmm. and, and try to compromise. Yeah. I think, honestly, mm-hmm. that we, uh, and for my part, I haven't brought it up enough and we haven't, ta- we talked about it, but not enough and we haven't delved mm-hmm. into it enough. It's like yeah. still on our plate to improve yeah. our, but but that's one of those, uh, that's one of those fun, uh, fun uh, missions to yeah. have. And, and I Let's think have the, lots of sex and <laughs> make it a lot yeah. better and, and come yeah. better. Yeah, I think it's great. And also I think that it's wonderful that we have this uh, basis of because we are in, in counseling. Um, and I think that it's great that we have this sort of tool that we can use to examine any issues that come up or anything that we're not sure about. And this could be one of them. What, what are the issues, if any, that come up for you around your sexuality? I've, I've found very few people who've experienced sexual abuse that that don't have some type of issue or struggle mm-hmm. um, sexually is that is that true for you sure I think that um, in in recent years I've been in a much better place in terms of my sexuality but in terms of my body for example things like that I do have a lot of issues uh, surrounding that Um I yeah my my relationship with my body is sometimes very I don't know how to describe it but I do sometimes feel that there is a really big disconnection that I feel between myself and my body and the way that I perceive what my body looks like. Uh, It's almost like uh, body dysmorphia sometimes. I can look in the mirror and see something with my eyes that I know is not what my body (laughs) looks like. I know this because I've been in therapy and it's been pointed out to me, but um, 
yeah, like I have a real issue with uh, my stomach. I I often feel as though I have a really bloated stomach to the extent that if you can imagine a woman who is about five months pregnant, that's already sort of a, a bump. Um, I often feel that I'm walking around with this visible thing on my body. Um, and it's a feeling that's very difficult to shake. And it's sort of, it's, it's a feeling that comes and goes. So I have a very complex relationship with my body in general. And in terms of my sexuality, um, I think relating to, to the sexual abuse, I think that one thing that was connected, which doesn't really happen to me anymore, but, um, for, for many, many years, I used to have this hurt or offended feeling, like this very strong, hurt feeling when I would see people being promiscuous or hmm. um, like say a, an actress uh, who, who was nude in a movie, I would feel so offended for her. Why would she allow herself to be in that situation where she would let people see her when she's nude? Like. I would just feel so awful about that or or people who are having casual sex and it's consensual and they're very happy with it. I would just feel so hurt by that, by, by knowing that about them, by the fact that they were doing that. Um, and I, I very much related to to the, the molestation. So one of the uh, last things I want to talk about is the mental toll it takes living on living in a country, Israel, that has so much conflict and so much tension in it. Um, where, where to begin talking about this? Well, first of all, I think that the, the, that the focus for... Oh, indeed, where to begin. <laughs> but... Um, oh my God, I thought I, thought I could... I, I don't know how far to go, how far back to go, how much, how much background to give. Well, let's talk about the issue of, uh, like Paul asks, of the emotional toll... I think the the, the most the, the, of the pressures that we feel are economic and not to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, Although every now and again, there is a war and it's almost like, okay, part of the routine, whenever uh, attention needs to be diverted from something, uh, you know, where uh, the government needs to take responsibility. So in general, we have a war. Do you, are you guys within range of the rocket attacks? In uh, the last one, we were because they targeted Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. Um, Where were they firing them from? Gaza. They reached Tel Aviv from yeah, Gaza? Yeah, they did. There were rockets yeah. on Tel Aviv. Nobody got hurt. They had uh, There was a, we- a couple of weeks, what was it? A year and a half ago or something? A year yeah. ago? Yeah, about a year they had ago. A f- they had a few weeks of rocket attacks. Um, look, um, we're on the left. We think the occupation doesn't need to exist. We think uh, Israel... Is doing a lot of things wrong, um, so we're not going to be big defenders of Israel. I know there's a lot of that going on. Most people you right. ask about in Israel, even if they identify as right-wing people or they don't, you talk to them about something and they'll say yes, but they, they, they. All mm. they can do is talk about they and how much we're better than them. And you know, it doesn't even matter as a person in any country. You need to take responsibility for yourself and for your own side, and uh, and. And that's it. And there's so little of that. In general, there's so little responsibility taking on behalf of people. It's so tempting and so easy to have a target to uh, unload all your mm. issues on. I was th- I think of that quote, uh, Golda, I think it was Golda Meir, that said, for there to be peace in the future, mm-hmm. um, people are going to have to love their children more than they hate. 
their, Ex- their enemy. Except that I think Golda Meir uh, directed that at yes. Palestinians. The, the Palestinians. She was passive aggressive when she said that. Of yeah. course, that's such a passive aggressive yeah. thing to say. Of course yeah. it is. But but as as we a, love our children. <laughs> What's course. wrong with them? No, but I think as a, as a sort of a, as an idea. I think that it's a very valuable one uh, that we should uh, love and value what there is more than the energy that we sort of use up hating someone else. I think the thing that's so difficult about that, though, is that there that requires so much patience because the the love that you show isn't going to be immediately accepted and reciprocated. It's going to be if any, maybe used against you as a sign mm-hmm. of vulnerability and weakness. Look, that that's true. It's always true that when you are open, um, you're also open to being hurt. But that can't stop you being open. I mean, you should believe enough in your own resilience to be able to be open. Mm-hmm. You know what I think is a sign of weakness? Uh, turning a deaf ear to peace proposals. You yes. know, there's an Arab peace proposal since 2002. And Israel's foreign policy is sticking their fingers in their ears and going, la, 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 we don't hear you. Yeah. I, I want to shy away, even though I uh, agree with you guys, I want to shy away from this becoming political and yeah. focus more yeah. on the emotional aspects right. of living in a, in a country well, where there's If you ask about conflict. our personal experience, I think my, and I think yours too, personal experience is more to do with economic stuff. Some of the stuff that maybe isn't heard here so often is that Israel is number, is like at the bottom of the list in the supposedly civilized world in um, gaps, economic gaps. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. It's even worse in the United States and worse than anywhere else. Wow. The government is, there's rampant privatization. There's uh, all sorts of t- all sorts of terrible things that are um, just, I don't know, I don't know where to begin. So, are taxes pretty high too? Mm-hmm. Taxes are very high. Yeah. Living is extremely, it's untenable. Everybody's in debt. Everybody's overdrawn. Um, there's, I won't even go into the the, the reasons, but the big um, movement that's been happening over the last couple of years since 2011 is more to do with an economical uh, background. To, that, that's what got hundreds of thousands of people into the streets to protest more in 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 uh, the same kind of vein as Occupy Wall Street and stuff like that. Um, because sadly, tragically, the public in Israel... Um, it's not even a right-wing, right-wing left-wing thing. Uh, sadly... Because people are just sick of politics and people want to change. They don't even know what the change needs to be and they're just sick of it. As sick as Americans are of seeing it on their TV, Israel people are just as sick of it and everybody just wants to live their lives. And, and the Palestinians too, you know, the most people, you, you just hear about the factions that get something out of making a ruckus and advancing their own agenda and whatever. But 99% of people, in, in my belief, or 90% of people, you know, they're trying to get on with their lives. And... Um, the Israeli public is really, really disenchanted with with politics, with the idea that your representatives can somehow represent you. So, um, but they do want change. They really, really want change, but they have no idea how to bring it on. And so every every time there's an election, some other party that pops up, all of a sudden gets lots and lots of support. It just happened now. I know an anchor, a TV anchor from TV, headed a political party, got a ton of seats in the parliament, just because everybody knew who he was and everybody said, okay, he's new, let's try him, you know. And he didn't identify as left or right. He was just this TV guy. Okay, bring him on. Now he's the minister of, uh, like, the treasury. And he's just continuing with the same exact policies as the people who came before. So 
and and people seriously, if you're trying to bring out, most people will not identify as left, even so, or right or left. I think. What did you What did you guys feel when Rabin was assassinated? Ooh, lordy. I was uh, living in South Africa at the time. I was I th- there. I was in Tel Aviv. I was. I think I was about twelve. I didn't really understand the implications. Right. I was a bit older. I'm. I'm. I was seventeen. But in retrospect, it seems that there hasn't been anyone similar since, and that that may have been. I don't want to say like our last uh, chance at um, some sort of. No, you shouldn't Discourse say that. Or, I know I shouldn't say that. So but many seems... Israelis are like, "That's it. It's over. It'll never happen." And yeah. no, no, no. And and it's 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 really it's like a society that has given up. And and people on the right are actively saying, "No, there, we don't even want peace." You know, we're be- we'll we'll just do this. And suddenly, fuck them. And suddenly, peace has become a very loaded word in Israel. Um, I just have to say, pause and say that uh, Joe's views are his views, and I respect sure, sure. them. They're not my views. Um, my approach, I think, is a little bit different, but still maybe to the left. Um, and and I'm sort of also removed from politics. I don't really understand. Remember how I said before about my thinking being more uh, based on an individual rather than a group? So it very much manifests itself here as well. I, I feel like I lack a basic understanding of how these things work. So I do direct most of my attentions to more um, one-on-one activities or, you know, uh, social change rather than political change um, and things like that. But But there is, you know, I do... Maybe being that I've lived in a few places and I've lived in South Africa and in Israel, which are both very complex societies, it allows me to maybe uh, be able to look at these things in a way that's slightly, uh, you know, further away and to, to, to look at the broad picture maybe and to, but it's definitely uh, better for your mental health to see it, how it, that it is. It is because you, you have experienced the fact that this has happened before and people uh, tend to recreate uh, an us and them mentality and that's where war comes from. It's, it's something that mm-hmm. happens. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, but it's something that happens. I read an article, I don't know how true it is, but it talked about um, the mental toll that many of the young people who go into the Israeli army, mm-hmm. you know, they see things that they don't want to see. Yeah. Maybe they participate in things that they feel ambiguous yeah. or opposed to. Mm-hmm. And many of them, when they're discharged or even when they're on break yeah. from service, they escape into drugs. They go and they travel and yeah. they do lots of acid. Yeah. They do lots oh, of yeah. ecstasy. And, and a lot of other uh, escape mechanisms too, I'm sure. That's a, a whole other show. And also, we're not people to talk because we didn't serve in the military. We were both, you know, we didn't experience it firsthand. But another thing you probably won't hear so much is that the number one cause of death with Israeli soldiers is suicide, by far. Um, the, the, the Israeli army doesn't want you to know that. And Same I, here. It's more people die by uh, suicide than in in combat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, by far. And and in Israel, the military is sacred and holy. Yeah, even more than here. Even here, you'll hear things like you know our boys and our, our and th- whatever thank you for our your brave men and women. And, in Israel, it's yeah. like th- that times ten because that is 
like a joke, like a famous thing that I believe is absolutely true is that Israel is an army that has a country. Mm-hmm. It's built on a military ethos and um, and they keep, you know, every time there's a new public outrage about a famous singer or showbiz person, he didn't go to the army. Mm-hmm. You know, how can he... Give, how can he, uh, you know, sell tickets Are to a guys, show? Have you been judged for not serving? Oh, yes. One thing that I was... I don't feel personally that I have, though. I was just talking to Joe's sister this morning yeah. about... Um, Who the, did serve in the army. Right. But about this idea that I think many Israelis feel as though their contribution to their society is in those years that they serve in the army. Mm. And um, I... Uh, didn't and haven't and don't view um, my contribution as though it needs to be in the military framework. But but I'm very I uh, in terms of contributing to society, that's a, va- a value that I hold very very dear. For me, I see it as a, a daily thing, um, and not something that's limited to a, a certain number of years or something like that. And that being said, I've always found it to be really ridiculous and outrageous that people have been livid at me for refusing to contribute, quote-unquote, to our society uh, just because my contribution wasn't in the the shape that they think it should be. Uh, with me, my, my older siblings were all in the military, and because we're all a bunch of rebellious people... Uh, they didn't fare well. They were, in, you know, in jail sometimes for refusing orders or going AWOL and stuff like that. And they all had psychologically a very hard time. I saw them lashing out at home. I saw the toll it took on them and stuff like that. When it came my turn, when I was 18, uh, I asked also them and everybody that I knew around me, should I go into the service? And everybody says, no, you know, don't do it. And so I, I sort of went and I did a little bit of psychodrama and sort of pretended to be really, really nuts. And they let me, they, they didn't uh, draft me. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of a quote that I just heard recently, and I apologize that I can't remember who it was. But this person said that um, insanity is not hearing people that aren't there. Insanity is not seeing people that are there right in front of you. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's really profound. Because if you think about most of the problems, and especially starting with people's childhoods, most of the profound problems are not being seen, heard, and felt. Mm-hmm. And you take that away, and people lose hope. They lose a sense of self-esteem. Mm-hmm. They become cynical. And what problem doesn't doesn't go back to that feeling that you don't matter? Mm-hmm. You know, or that you have nothing to live for. Mm. And uh, how do you change that fuck? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Well, I, I just uh, hope I can do it in my lazy boy watching documentaries <laughs> about serial killers. <laughs> Good luck about that. Which, by the way, I really relate to. That's, yeah. That's, yeah, that's a, f- yeah. a hobby of both of you. Yeah. And uh, am just completely uh, morally bankrupt gangsters. That's the other mm. thing that I really... Yeah? You there's enjoy a, those? Oh, there's a, there's a new series called America's Most Evil, and oh. it's about the most depraved um, gangsters and gang leaders. Mm. Uh, and each one is feels like a Christmas present to me. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's really for the sick. Tip, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh really sick, but I don't, I don't judge it. I'm like, you know what? Some people, darkness um, is a weird light to them. And for some reason, that, that is to me. I can't help. I, I make fun of it a little bit. Uh, well, you make fun of me a lot. I know, because every time <laughs> I walk into the room, it's like, 
you know, I just hear snippets of dialogue from coming from the YouTube, and they and he burned his wife alive. <laughs> you know. Oh, and uh, you know. Well, for me, it's just uh, very. I've always been really, really fascinated by the human condition, and I want to know as much about it as possible, and as much of its spectrum as possible. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Endlessly fascinated with mm -hmm. why one person, and often one person who may have qualities that are. Not of benefit to the community, where, but you know maybe they do things that are good, and then they mm -hmm. have this shadow side, mm -hmm. where it's just like, oh my God, that person's that side to them is is monstrous. Well, that can happen, sure. I mean, a person is a complex animal. Um, yeah. Well, uh, Joe, June, thank you guys so much for coming and sharing. Uh, your lives and uh, and your relationship with each other. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you so much. This has been a great experience. And thanks for doing this podcast. Yes, thank you. Many, many thanks to Joe and June. And uh, we recorded that actually quite a while ago. We recorded that almost two years ago. And uh, I shot them an email yesterday to ask uh, for an update, and I've not heard back from them yet. So uh, we can assume that they're both dead. They They had a lover's quarrel. And uh, they both shot each other. <laughs> oh, I also wanted to mention, too, that uh, there was probably about a 20-minute portion that we recorded where we talked uh, specifically about issues related to living in Israel. And I decided to cut them out because I felt like they were um, more political than they were um, emotional. And um, for any of you that are wondering why I would have um, guests on that live in a war-torn uh, country and uh, not delve into that. So, um, yeah, just trust me on that one. Before we take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways that you can support the show financially. You can go to our website, which is mentalpod.com, and you can make either a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, uh, becoming a recurring monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month, and it really means a lot to me, and it helps keep the podcast going. Um, it's super simple to, uh, to fill out, and then uh, you don't have to do anything until uh, either your credit card expires or you uh, decide that I'm a jackass and uh, you're done with me, which probably happens more than you would think. Um, you can also support us financially by uh, using our Amazon search portal. When you're going to buy something at Amazon, enter through our homepage. Uh, we got a little search box for Amazon on the right-hand side. And um, that way, if you buy something, Amazon will give us a couple of nickels. And that's not to be confused with the search box on our homepage for our website itself. And that is a great tool to use if you're looking for an episode or a blog on a particular topic. Um, much easier than scrolling through uh, episode by episode. Uh and finally, you can support us non-financially by uh, going to iTunes, giving us a good ranking or a good rating and writing something nice about us and uh, spreading the word about the podcast through social media. That's a, that's a really big, uh, big help. So any of those, all of them, none of them. This is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself, oh, it's Andrea. 
And about her depression, she writes, Bipolar 2, being medicated versus unmedicated. Medication aims my brain straight through life's chutes. But the interesting stuff only happens if the gates open and it's allowed to buck its way around the world, no matter who gets thrown off, including me. Snapshot from her life. Many nights in college, before I'd been diagnosed or medicated, I was up until two or three, listening to music, writing, making collages, whatever, without realizing what time it was or caring whether what I was doing was good, bad, or ugly. Now it takes that amount of energy for me to get out of bed and face my day, any day, without berating myself for abandoning everything I used to do that made me happy, because I'm too tired to do them. Sleep is high on my list of hobbies now, like number two. I wish I did not relate so much to that one. That is, although I never really had the, uh, it sounds like, the kind of mania that uh, that yours is, um, I do I do miss the, uh, the passion. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Be Tough. And she is... Straight, she's in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment, and I just wanted to read one part of it, her darkest secret, because it's one of the most fucked up things I think I've ever read. Darkest secret, my husband punched me in the face while I was holding our newborn. Let that sink in. Um, this is from The Struggle in a Sentence, filled out by... <laughs> guy who calls himself Maury Amsterdam's Taint. I'm a fan already. And uh, about his depression, he writes, feeling like every day I'm rediscovering for the first time that I'll never be the person I want to be or achieve the things that I was so sure I'd be able to achieve by this age. Dude, I think so many of us feel that exact same thing. I would bet 95% of us feel that way. And the other 5% can go fuck themselves. A snapshot from his life. This is... You know, I read stuff... I'm just going to read it. Snapshot from his life. Go to bed late most nights because I work from home as a freelance uh, freelancer, uh, designer for games and movies. And the hours can be horrendous. At least three times a week, the only way I can fall asleep is to take the meds for the nerve damage in my legs from the spinal cord issues and masturbate to porn on my phone while my wife, who hasn't shown the smallest amount of affection towards me in years, snores next to me. Sometimes when I get off, I put a hand on my sleeping wife's hip just so I can touch another person while this short period of physical pleasure happens. This is the only kind of physical pleasure I have. That is heartbreaking, and I'm sending you some love. This is an awful some moment filled out by Jenny, and she writes, It was two days before my wedding. My dad presumably thought it would be a good idea to have, quote, the talk. Our family never spoke of anything sex-related, and if somehow things got too close to that subject, the tension was palpable. So two days before my wedding, I walk through the living room where mom and dad were sitting. Dad says, we wanted to talk to you about something. I stopped walking. He said, as awkwardly as humanly possible, the first time, you might bleed. Yep, that was his information. No intro, no further explanation, just that random fact. 
This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Sunny. And uh, she's straight. She's in her 30s. Was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Never been sexually abused. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. She has been sexually abused and she never reported it. She's been emotionally abused. Um, any positive experiences with the abusers? I was in love with the guy who raped me. I fell out of love with him out of disgust for what he did, but I'm ashamed to say I was at one point in love with that monster. Darkest thoughts. Sometimes I think about finding the guy who raped me and talking to him about how much he fucked me up, but I'm ashamed that I had feelings for him and worried that if I saw him, those feelings would come back. Darkest secrets. I have a shopping addiction. It helps me feel better about myself and numb the pain. I buy clothes, shoes, and jewelry mostly. I feel such a rush when I'm buying things, but then I feel like such a puppet of consumerist, materialistic culture. I also start feeling like shit when I try on things I buy because I am unhappy with the way I look. But when I buy them, I buy them for the version of myself that I would like to become. Occasionally, I do wear the things I buy, but mostly I just feel shame about buying them and spending so much money when I just end up looking like shit anyway. But it's easier to go shopping than to actually fix anything inside of myself. Any comments? Oh no, Uh, have you shared these things with others? Uh, This is painful and I've never told anyone about it. I think that would be uh, something that therapy would be very uh, beneficial for talking about. This is Shame and Secret Survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Olivia Joy. She is gay. She's 19. She was raised in a stable and safe environment. And I just wanted to read a couple of excerpts from it. Uh, Her darkest thoughts. This has been bothering me a lot lately, and I don't really feel confident sharing it with others because it's really painful to talk about, and I'm an idiot when it comes to talking, but here goes. I spend a ridiculous amount of time coming up with detailed scenarios in which I suffer lots of pain, emotional or physical, usually physical. It's like an ongoing storyline I have in my head, like a movie I can't pause or stop. All I can think about before bed is being in a room with concrete walls and floors with no windows and a ceiling so low I can't fully stand. It's always dark but I can see well enough to just make out the blood and piss and feces that cover every inch of the little cell I imagine for myself. Sometimes the floor is covered in tiny pieces of glass, so I can't sit, but it's hard to stand. I spend hours in this headspace before I finally fall asleep. I also find myself drifting off into this fucked up little fantasy thing when I should be doing work or driving. It really scares me. I'm crying while I write this. I don't know what to do. I think it would be great to find somebody safe to open up to about that. Uh, Darkest secrets. I don't get any pleasure out of those daydreams, at least not sexually. I think I do enjoy hurting myself like that since I gave up cutting and I know that killing myself isn't an option. I kind of don't want to stop sometimes. When I'm really deep into one of those scenarios, I almost prefer it to what's going on in reality. I go back and forth on my feelings about it all the time. I don't know what to do. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to say? I'd like to tell the clinician at the hospital I was committed to after my suicide threat that I was definitely not attracted to him and that he is one of the kindest people I've ever met. I was really young, maybe 14 or 15 when I met him, and I'd really never talked to someone so kind. 
I think I gave off the wrong impression that I had a crush on him, but that is definitely not the case. I had just never really had a friend at that point. I cringe about that almost every day. I would bet that that guy totally understood where you were coming from and it made his day that he could see that he had made an impact on someone's life and that they felt felt. So I would stop beating yourself up uh, immediately about that. This is from the What Has Helped You survey filled out by our friend uh, Tech Chick. And uh, her issues are depression, anxiety, obsessive thinking, and social isolation. And what helps her is working out at the gym, playing the banjo or listening to music, talking with a therapist or a trusted friend, writing feelings down in a journal, 12-step meetings, funny TV, and the mental illness happy hour. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself L. Hump. He is... Straight, he's in his 40s. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, He says he talked about it in the babysitter survey. Don't know if we've read that one uh, of his or not. He's been emotionally abused. He writes, uh, my mom had a way of withering away my self-esteem on every occasion. I can't remember specifics, but I realized a few years ago that I had to control her commentary because it was uh, emotionally erosive. She always found a way to criticize me. Weight, intelligence, not living up to her expectations for me. I know we get shit when we're growing up, but I just wish that her self-esteem was high enough to fill me with some, or at least fake it to make me feel valuable. A couple of years ago, she went into full-time care because of a stroke. She's a lot more tolerable to visit, but it's a super sad situation. I got to the heart of her on my most recent visit. I looked into her eyes and I told her, I love you. Her eyes welled up and she said, thank you. What I would have preferred was, I love you too. And that's where the trouble is. I don't think she loved anyone, herself, her children, her life. Poor thing. I've been working on growing an ability to love my whole life. Uh, Any positive experiences with your abusers? She's my mom. She has a wicked sense of humor. I think her lack of empathy was actually a, quote, game she played. It eventually became erosive and pervasive. If I laughed at her shittiness, it was super wicked funny. But as a child, you don't know when she's being funny and when she's being serious, and that causes confusion. Boo. There were times, but mostly, I felt guilty, ashamed, and like I would do anything to escape her presence. What are your darkest thoughts? Not so much anymore, but driving into oncoming traffic. Um, does that mean that you you fantasize about casually driving into oncoming traffic? Maybe just uh, sideswiping. Uh, fantasizing that I'm already dead. I had a brief bout of Cotard's delusion last year. I used to fantasize about being a serial killer. Of course, I'm a big coward and never followed through. And more recently, as part of my spiritual and psychological growth, I realized I could never purposely hurt another person. My empathy as a child finally resolved itself in adulthood, and I am a meek and peaceful hominid. I still know way too much about serial killers, though, and my ability to write violence is unprecedented. And his other thought is that I'll die alone and no one can ever love me. Darkest Secrets. I was once part of a group of boys that attempted to gang rape a girl. It was a weird scene where I could feel the animal energy of the mob moving us. I seem to remember someone calling it off. I like to think it was me. 
I can vividly see myself at the back of the crowd and everyone looking back at me in confusion while the girl ran off. I hope I was a hero, or at least I cast myself in that role, but it's all blurry. The rape never happened, and we never talked about it again, but the family moved a week later, Later, so there's that. Uh, other secrets. I used to love masturbating while there was a full house on the other side of the door, at parties, or when roommates have guests. Sometimes when I have people over and I'm, quote, taking a shit. I used to love wiping my jism on other people's stuff or my art, things that many people will touch. I used to love getting caught masturbating by roommates, family, and girlfriends. I used to love touching my penis on other people's stuff at their houses. I once put my balls in a lady friend's drink while she was in the bathroom. Uh, I once got an erection when a five-year-old girl who was sitting on my lap while grinding her ass into my crotch. And then he writes, I think that's enough. What about you? And that's the that's the end of his survey. Thank you for that honesty. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Sticky Fingers Steph. She's straight. She's in her 30s. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, she's never been sexually abused, but she has been emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts, I think about suicide all the time. Not that I'm going to act on it, but I think about it all the time. I hate it, but it's ever-present. Oh, the joys. Darkest secrets. I shoplift. I do it often, but only when I am not doing well mentally, usually when I am depressed. It's an endorphin rush. I take little things, a magazine, a book, a DVD, soap, stupid stuff that I know I could afford. It's truly ridiculous. I think that I'm just addicted to the rush, to the addiction of doing something bad. I don't know why. Yesterday, I got caught stealing a piece of, of cheese. Yes, goddamn cheese at Whole Foods. First time I've been caught. I claim that I had forgotten to put it back and got partially away with it. I think being a blonde, expensively dressed, blue-eyed girl who had a basket full of groceries that she had paid for probably helped, but it was humiliating. But still, I want to do it again. I signed that I wouldn't go into the store for six months, which is two blocks from my house, but I just want to go somewhere else and see if I can get away with it again. I need help. I will get in trouble. This will escalate. I don't know what to do. I know it has to do with my mental illness. It's just so shameful. Ugh. Cheese. Honestly, all over a $15 block of fucking Parmesan that I didn't even want. Now that is awfulsome on some level. Thanks for listening, Paul. I needed to tell someone and it's just too shameful to tell anyone else. You know, we all, any of us that, that have an addiction, we get a payoff from it. We get some type of rush. And that just happens to be yours, but there is help for that. I, I am sure that there is some type of support group for that um, or a therapist who specializes in that or has a, at least has experience with that. But you are not alone. I've read many surveys where people share that. And I've heard many people in person share that in my support groups. So um, try to let go of some of that shame. But you know what you do have control over is going going and asking for help. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have a large pregnancy fetish. It's about nurturing and caring for someone and also at the core, something I have always wanted and won't have given my mental illness. 
what if anything do you wish for? A child, a partner, the life I had before mental illness, the job I had before mental illness, happiness. I don't think that is too much to ask, do you? Uh, have you shared these things with others? Rarely do I share these things with others. Rarely do I admit them to myself. How do you feel after writing these things down? Sad for me. I wish I could be happy in where I am and the life I have now. I know that I am successful for someone living with bipolar. I am just not as successful as I once was. I have given up so much for this disease. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It's a tough journey, and mourning the life you had before mental illness is one of the toughest things that I had to do. It still flares up sometimes. You know, my experience has been is it, it, it's kind of a roller coaster. And a lot of times when we think it's just, you know, going to be nothing but bleak uh, for forever, things get better and um, and vice versa. And if experience has taught me anything, it's to just be okay with where I am. And uh, that got me through that couple of month period coming off Abilify. You know, there were many days when all I could really do was sleep and, you know, do whatever the bare minimum stuff I had to do to keep my life going. And um, and I didn't beat myself up for it. And that's that. It took me years to get to that point. And I hope anybody out there that is struggling with an addiction or with mental illness, I hope you, you can learn to be kind to yourself and ride up out those tough times by doing nice things for yourself. It's It's been hugely important in me um, maintaining my, my sanity and dignity. Believe it or not, I do have a little dignity. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself PTSD Princess. And she writes, forgive the darkness at the beginning. I promise there is some awesome. My brother raped me when I was young and it went on for years. I put uh, what happened to me in a box and then buried it. I've always told myself that what happened when I was a kid doesn't affect my life. I have a great job. I'm married to a wonderful man. We even have great, healthy, and frequent sex. Then I was sexually assaulted by a friend and I decided it was time to talk to a therapist. He diagnosed me with PTSD. That alone crushed me. I am not affected. I'm a healthy and productive member of society, I kept telling myself. So, needless to say, this journey that I'm currently on is the most stressful thing I have willingly walked into. One night, I was supposed to be doing a homework assignment for my therapist. I was all but kicking and screaming. I did not want to do this thing that would make me face what happened to me. I was venting my frustrations and feelings of apprehension to my husband. He said to me, understand one thing. No one in this situation is judging you. No one is trying to hurt you. We are trying to help you and us. It was exactly what I needed to hear. Now, before now, before I begin any assignments or have to face a situation where I'm feeling insecure about having PTSD, I think of his words. I'm so lucky to have a partner who is not only encouraging me to heal, but holding my hand and helping me through it. That's beautiful. Thank you. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself the hate hippie. <laughs> I love that name. Uh, about his uh, alcoholism and drug addiction, he writes, like a seductive python, soothing me and telling me it's all right while slowly constricting around me and strangling everything good in my life until nothing is left but my raw essence for it to feed upon. 
about being by gender. He writes, it feels like I'm being betrayed by my genitals. I spend all day lusting over every gorgeous woman I see and falling in love with close female acquaintances only to come home to a cock that gets hard at night and fills me with the desire to dress like a woman and and crave cock. My heart, brain, and cock need to grow to go to group counseling. A snapshot from his life. I'm drunk and high, wearing bra and panties, and I've just finished masturbating to transgender porn online. As soon as I finish, the desire to cross-dress completely leaves me. The shame of what I just did rushes in, followed by the anxiety that I was trying to escape from in the first place, followed by the depression that no one, that none of this will ever end. Well, I was so moved by, by what you wrote, and it breaks my heart that you judge yourself so harshly for uh, your sexuality. You know, uh, there is nothing wrong with what is getting you off. Um, I think the the thing to focus on is the alcoholism and the drug addiction. That's, I think, I think if you can get help for that and get that under control, and start connecting to people on a deeper level, I think you're going to start to feel some real self-love come in, and I think you're going to embrace your sexuality and see that you are a beautiful child of God and uh, and hopefully be able to have great orgasms without any shame. That That is my hope for you. But I think the until you can get the the drug and alcohol problem uh under control i th- i think it's going to be impossible to deal with that um that shame that you feel and you shouldn't feel any uh this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself always second place she's straight she's in her 30s she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment uh she was a victim of sexual abuse and reported it uh she was molested by a stranger Uh, while I was a student abroad. It was a one-time incident, which I reported to the police, and then in parentheses, not that they did anything about it. She's been emotionally abused and was my mom's emotional punching bag from a young age. She overshared with me about my dad, including about her sex life with him, and used me as her comfort when she was feeling down. She'd often remind me how she literally sacrificed her life to have kids and how dare we not do what she thought was best for us. My dad is emotionally checked out, which is why my mom used me, and I didn't get much support there. Basically, I was not allowed to have needs. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Yes, my dad is a very kind person despite his lack of emotional intelligence, and he often went often went out of his way to help me when I needed it. What complicates my feelings is I want to hate him for his deep lack, but I understand why he did it. I can even forgive him because I don't have expectations darkest thoughts. I am intensely jealous of my sister. She is my only sister, and I wish we could be better friends, but each time I get together with her, I feel like the biggest loser. She's taller, prettier, smarter, more outgoing, more fashionable, more competent, etc. than me. And when she leaves, I just feel empty and question my whole existence, because compared to her, what am I worth? Do I even deserve to be noticed? And then I feel shame and I judge how I feel because it sounds so juvenile in my own head. Darkest Secrets 
When I was about 20 years old, my best friend had gotten married. Her husband asked me to help him out by making phone calls for his business. So I'd come so I'd come in the mornings and help before I went to my own job. After a few days, he started hanging out near where I was working, and then he started giving me back massages while his wife, my friend, was in another room. I asked him to stop, but he didn't, and I didn't insist because it actually felt good. I also didn't quit helping because he was very persistent, and I didn't know how to say no. It went on for a little while longer, and then I finally got too busy to help out anymore. Looking back, he probably asked to help him out. He probably asked to help him out just so he could be near me. He's a creep, but I feel just as guilty for not putting my foot down. I never told and I don't intend to tell my f- don't intend to tell my friend so I can spare her the pain. Let me pause for one second. Um sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Having sex outside my marriage with older men, having a quote pee party with other women and then having sex with them having a penis. I've always wanted to have one of those. By the way, Mr. Freud, I don't think you could have been more wrong. In the four years of doing this show, I think I've read several thousand of these surveys, maybe somewhere around 5,000. I think three times I've heard a woman say that she wished she had a penis. Um... Or maybe, maybe you're not sharing that. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my mom how much she hurt me and how much of what I suffer today is because of what I went through with her. I'm doing intense therapy to work through all this shit, but a little validation from her would go a long way. I can't because she won't let me. Each time I try to point out that she might have done an imperfect job, she gets all emotionally hysterical on me and blames it on the, quote, fucking therapist. So I stopped trying. Your mom sounds like a real narcissist. Uh, What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace on a personal and global level. To stop struggling so much. I would also love to be able to climax while having sex. It's so frustrating to be aroused and want the sex, but then after he's all done, no matter how long it took him and no matter how rubbed out my vagina is, I'm still aching for an orgasm that I then have to work myself to get. Have you shared these things with others? Yes. Uh, No problem. I have lots of supportive people in my life who understand where I'm coming from. How do you feel after writing these things down? Shame and sadness about my sister and my friend. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It's important to be aware of why we react the way we do and where in our lives these behaviors may have come up. And it's just as important to take take back our lives by recognizing our lives by recognizing these parts and deciding to make things better for ourselves. Thank you for that honesty. I appreciate that. And I hope I hope you can stop beating yourself up about uh, how you feel about your sister. And, uh, you know, maybe just when those feelings come up, just kind of watch them like a, like a movie that you're, you know, uh, that, that, that a part of your brain is putting on and just be entertained by it. This is from the babysitter survey, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Creep Show. She's female, she's straight, she's in her 30s. Uh, She's also a therapist. Um, She was the victim of sexual abuse and uh, never reported it. 
And she writes, uh, my babysitter gave me the choice to go to bed or watch public access porn with her. I was nine or so. When she could see I was captivated by what was on TV, she laughed and said, you like it, don't you? Um, I'm not sure if she had me touch or kiss her crotch over her jeans, but I have flashbacks of her crotch. I eventually told my mother that she had made me do prank phone calls, had drawn on my wall and permanent marker underneath my unicorn poster, and that she had made me watch Creep Show, but I never mentioned about the porn because I thought I'd get in trouble for having watched it or that somehow my mother would know I'd been aroused. For years, I didn't remember the porn and only recently remembered her getting off on my arousal. I'm a straight female and have always been aroused by unpleasant sexual scenarios. The babysitter was probably about 16 at the time and really trashy looking. I have a fear of having an orgasm in front of someone else. And when I watch porn, which is the only way I can achieve orgasm, I usually watch a scenario involving a trashy older woman humiliating and dominating a younger female. Uh, remembering these th- things, what feelings come up? I feel like I can't. I feel like I can stop beating myself up. I feel like I now understand that being frightened and aroused and being watched and objectified and having my desire exposed was humiliating and confusing and that I cannot control what arouses me. I don't want to act on those fantasies, but it's okay for me to allow myself to experience arousal and release and to be where I am in my healing process. Do you feel any damage was done? It was incredibly damaging. Those experiences... Uh, she writes, it happened multiple times, were so overwhelming and confusing and made me think my sexuality was something that didn't belong to me and that I was a pervert. Uh, If you are a parent, has your experience influenced how you view your children being babysat? She writes, I have two daughters and I'm a psychotherapist, so I'm very careful. And if I get get a vibe that someone has poor boundaries, I don't let them watch my kids. Thank you for that. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Life is Stranger Than Fiction. And she writes, when I was 17, when my brother died, he was 19 and had lived his whole life severely disabled with cerebral palsy. We, the whole family, watched him die in a hospice care facility in a room painted yellow with blue seas and pirates. There was a lot of closure since he had lived long for someone in his condition and we loved him very much. So after he died... His body was in the bed, and I guess we sort of had a wake. But what they don't tell you is that the eyelids don't close immediately after death. So my parents propped him up in bed and put sunglasses on him. And then she writes, I had to laugh. Oh my God, you cannot make this shit up. You cannot make it up. Um... And then finally, this is a beautifully subtle moment, a beautifully subtle happy moment um, from Frida Kay. And she writes, On Saturday, I unintentionally broke down in front of my parents about having borderline personality and social anxiety disorder. Actually, this isn't subtle. Um, The conversation started out in what I perceived to be them shaming me for quitting my job and starting a new career with a small company. I tried my best to ask my mom to talk to me with different word choices because what she says is triggering to me. 
I must have been so emotionally charged that I sounded aggressive myself and it only started an argument. Eventually, I started to cry uncontrollably and ask them why they can't just acknowledge that I feel sad. Why can't they acknowledge any emotion at all? I tried to continue the argument while ugly crying. I ended up sputtering a few words in between shallow breaths. I was having a panic attack, but forcing myself to get the words out. That I was diagnosed with BPD, and I'd had to see a therapist all these years without them knowing. They were still pretty shitty about validating everything I'd just revealed. They go back to the topic of the job, or my mom would try to hush me as she would a whining dog. But eventually they sat next to me on the couch and put their arms around me. My mom finally said the magic words. It's good you told us so that we know that what we say is bothering you. I asked if they'd like to see some worksheets from therapy. They both agreed in unison. This was the first fucking time in my entire life that I felt truly validated by my parents. Thank you for that. That's um you are one brave person. You are really one brave person that that you you did something that was so incredibly vulnerable around people that it sounds like are really hard to be vulnerable around. And you, man, you just laid all your chips out there. And uh, I, I got to salute you. I got to salute you. I'm saying that as if there's a part of me that doesn't want to salute you. Part of me, fuck her. She doesn't deserve a salute. But uh, that that is just, uh, you are a brave, brave soul. And I'm so glad that you got some love back from your parents. And it sounds like maybe there's a new chapter in your relationship with them. Um, I got an email from somebody a little while ago that was, was um, or maybe it was a survey I read, but this person was, oh, I think it was somebody posted in the forum and they had a lot of shame about mistakes they had made in a, as, as a parent. And, um, you know, my feeling is it doesn't matter what you've done as a parent. It's never too late to to say, uh, if your children are still alive, to to apologize for something, you know. I, I don't know anybody who hasn't been helped by a sincere apology from, from a parent or anybody. Um, I, I don't think anything, um, they're, I don't know. I just lost my train of thought. Go fuck yourselves. We're done. I'm done with you. Anyway, I hope you heard something tonight that helped you, comforted you, made you laugh, made you cry, maybe made you do both. And I hope it, if you're thinking about getting help, I hope you heard something tonight that made it a little less scary for you to pick up the phone or walk into a therapist's office. Um, and I hope you know that... Uh, no matter what you're going through, you're not alone. You never have been and you never have to be. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.